I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is Sean Fisher. Sean has had an illustrious career in international insurance, and this has culminated in a six-year period as CEO of the UK's well-renowned professional standards and qualifications body, the Chartered Insurance Institute, the CII. Sean is a strong and vocal female leader in our sector, and in her tenure has been a dynamic and effective agent of change at this venerable trade body. I think it's fair to say that she's shaken things up in this time. Now her departure has been announced, I caught up with her to reflect on her modernising work, the highs and lows of running a high-profile organisation through Brexit and then Covid, and her vision for keeping a hitherto very traditional institution relevant in the 21st century. We also discussed things that, with hindsight, she might have done differently, and what the future might hold for this highly experienced senior executive. Sean is great to talk to. She thinks and communicates clearly. She's eloquent. She's never shy, and she's always direct. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Well, Sean, thank you so much for taking up some of your valuable time and welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Well, thank you very much, Mark. You're now coming to an end of your time running the CII, mm-hmm. which has just recently been announced. But let's run through your time at the CII. What have been the high and the low points and what do you think your report card on yourself? <laughs> I'm always slightly nervous doing these things because I'm actually still going to be at the CII for the next six months. So you know what's going to happen. I'll say X and Y and then you know something will happen that will be completely, exactly, will be completely different. And uh, one thing about the time that I've been at the CII, you look back and you think it's six years. And one of the things people said to me when I took the role, they said, oh, well, you know, after some of the things you've done, like entrepreneurial businesses and whatever, oh, this will be very kind of straightforward, really, because the CII has been there for 100 years and it kind of bimbles along. And I look back on that and it makes me smile because in six years, two things that nobody ever imagined would ever happen ever 
as in Brexit and COVID have both happened in quite close succession and and we nearly ended up with devolution as well. So whatever you think is going to happen in your tenure at anything, I think the one thing we all learn is that it's nothing like what you expect when you first start. But um, I remember, I think you were sat in the front row when we did the launch of the manifesto, as it were, for the five years. And I had the privilege of working with PwC, which was a fantastic thing to do because I'd never done a big four consultancy. But what I did love was they, they said, normally when they turn up to an organisation, they have to kind of invent a strategy for the organisation. And they said what was so fantastic about the CII was, of course, the strategy is on the wall because we have a royal charter. And that tells us what we're there to do and what we should be doing. But I think in common with a lot of historic organisations, the CII had maybe lost a little bit of the why because it had been quite focused on the what and the how which is perfectly understandable so I think one of the things I hope I did was you know really give it back that why and focus back on the charter and say you know it's about building public trust and without trust we can't do anything but in some ways that's a platitude so you know what does that mean we've got to do and at that launch we sort of said we have to modernize our own organization because we're part of financial services which moves at a pace and if the professional body gets behind then you know that's not going to work but then we also have to earn a living because we're not a charity we're not a regulator you know we are a not-for-profit but we don't have access to shareholder funds or whatever so we have to sell things that people want to buy so I think those were the two big areas and we said ourselves modern relevant and diverse because that's the modern world and then we said if people are going to buy things from us then they've got to believe in our learning proposition they've got to believe in the value of membership and they've got to believe that the professional body is going to lead them somewhere and do something valuable so that was kind of what we did it must have been it's a challenging time I remember sitting in the front row there and when you talked about safeguarding the reputation of the industry I asked the question does that mean you're going to become a lobby group Mm. and I think you said very clearly you wouldn't but Mm. You were safeguarding the, the reputation of the industry by making it as professional and well-qualified as it possibly could be. Yeah. What would be your assessment of that? Obviously, particularly when we've had something like COVID, mm. sort of right in the middle, where we know that the reputation of the industry has been in the dock of the media. Mm. Well, somebody said to me, what's the elevator pitch for a professional body? And I said, well, it's got to be more member professionals to serve the public because... A professional body can't do anything itself. It can only show its worth, if you like, through its members. And that's always going to be a constant challenge because being a professional is a constant and it's got that kind of three elements to it of your technical competence, but it's also got the behaviours of behaving in a particular way and having a personal integrity in the way that you do things. And I think the biggest element probably is that idea of a fiduciary duty so that you care about the customer. So that's kind of a constant. I suppose you can't put that in an exam module, can you? I think it probably is in principles and practice, but I think those three things are really important. But what exactly that means at any given time because of the other circumstances that you're operating in, that is actually the real challenge throughout your career in your life. So if you're faced with a challenging conversation with a a client who feels that they 
haven't had something explained to them properly or whatever. How do you deal with that? And I think COVID obviously brought that to the fore because there were challenges there around clarity. There were challenges there around understanding. And actually, it's been really interesting to see how much effort has gone into helping clients through that scenario. And it's always going to be controversial if an insurer declines a claim. How does the broker handle that? Why is the insurer declining the claim? So there's never going to be a perfect set of circumstances. But what you want is that out the back of any challenge, there's been real learning from it and change and improvement from it. Because as I've said, you know, you can't go back and change the past, but you can change the future. And I think that is inherent to showing whether your sector is professional or not. Does it learn from things and does it move forward? And so what do you say with the big learning would be just the classic and make sure if your client's not going to read the wording, at least you tell them the 10 most important and potentially difficult things in that wording. Yes, I mean, I think there was some learning around, you know, it is challenging because customers often we're all customers ourselves and let's face it insurance isn't something that most of us dwell on particularly but that in many ways if you've got a professional advisor that's why you've got a professional advisor isn't it is is not just to tell you the good news but also to help you to understand the things that maybe are challenging or are not covered or whatever and I think that was a piece of learning but if you then also look on the manufacturing side if you look into other sectors and you think about the product manufacturers who are really rated and loved by their consumers, it's largely because the product, when you get it out of the box, largely does what you thought it was going to do and in the way that you thought it was going to do it. And the less it does and the more complicated it is, probably the less you love it. And I think that puts the onus on insurance manufacturers as well to be as clear as they possibly can about what it is their product does and how it does that. And we've all had the conversation about if you call something business interruption, then you can't blame the consumer for thinking that's what it's for. Um, you know, so, And if you call something all risks insurance or whatever, you can't blame the consumer for thinking that that's what it is. So there's an onus on the manufacturing side as well to think about the language and the communication that they're using, not just rely on consumers reading everything or advisors advising on everything everybody has their part to play so at some point in the future we'll be inventing the sort of iphone of insurance that'll be absolutely gorgeous and then you get out of the box and it you know you don't have to read the instruction manual and it just does what you think it's going to do Uh, yeah but (laughs) i i mean there's quite a lot of people around who will say well we were making a lot of progress with that particularly for smes but then we had regulation and that's set us back in terms of language and huge amounts of paperwork that you have to provide and forms that you have to fill in rather than concentrating on the client but you know my view is well that's the environment we operate in and it's not going to go away I mean financial services is hugely complicated and hugely important to consumers and therefore there's always going to be regulation of it so you know again we have to make a virtue out of that rather than railing against it or blaming it you've kind of got to live within it but I can see that bureaucracy can also be a negative as well as a positive. So you think the learning would be say after 9-11 we learned that it's probably a good idea to have a contract. Indeed. And now it's probably a good idea to have a contract that all parties understand. Yeah. 
you know, we convened a transparency forum afterwards because there is a lot of knowledge around and there's very, very good work around. But I don't know if you remember, I mean, there was a lot of focus at one point on plain English and things like that. And you do sometimes look back and think, well, where did that go? Because it seemed to be very, very popular. And I think everybody did get a bit lost in the RDR and the FCA being much more a consumer regulator, etc., And perhaps we've just had to kind of shake ourselves off after COVID and then say, right, we need to get back to some of that stuff. And it's when you know that almost any other product will be very careful about using language at a certain academic level and also at a certain clarity level, because there's a huge diversity of customers now. And English is often not people's first language and people's understanding of technical language is if anything, probably less than it used to be because there's very little discussion of financial matters at school or in general conversation these days. So, you know, that puts an onus to be able to communicate even better and be clear about what you do. But there are a lot of really good ideas around. It's a question of people focusing on the future. Sounds like the CIA should have been lobbying the Ministry of Education and other things, but I don't know. Well, I mean, governments have a hugely challenging... (laughs) challenging job I and mean, everybody blames them for everything and um, they have the same issue as, as everybody does with who do you communicate with how do you communicate how do you achieve an outcome and um, the clearer we can be as well with what we can contribute to what they're trying to do the better well, let's go back to the CII yes I think some people would say oh wow you're gonna go and run the CII after having had a really dynamic and really successful career in insurance to then go and run the CIA would say, or is this like your sort of stipend to sort of, mm. you know, before you <laughs> shuffle off somewhere and, you know, go and mm. retire? But you certainly didn't go at it like that. It seems like you wanted to really shake up the organisation. That was certainly the impression I think you probably had. Is that a right impression, so that you wanted to go at it? Yes, but I wouldn't put it like that, that it was, a, it was just like a personal agenda. I felt a real commitment to the organisation. I've always been a member. I believe in professionalism. I believe in professional bodies. But I do believe in a way that you kind of get the professional body that you engage in. (laughs) So if everyone stands to the side of the professional body and just moans about it, then you get what you deserve in, in a way. So if you want things to be different or you want things to be more energetic or whatever, then you've got to get involved. But that issue of people saying to me, oh, you know, I suppose, I suppose that's just a nice little end to your career or whatever. That's exactly what I wanted to change about the organisation itself and also the perception of it. Because regardless of that comment, a number of people said to me, they said, you do realise when you get there that people go there to die, right? And A, that's completely unfair because I know a lot of the people, I already knew a lot of the people at the CII. But goodness me, if that's how the the professional body is coming across. You know, professional bodies are all about young people, people starting on their careers, people qualifying to... The last thing you need is that a young person is thinking, you know, wow, this is the elephant's graveyard, I'm, I'm not going there. So I think the board of the CII had some concerns about that as well. And so it was a mutual conversation when... You know, they were talking to me and other people about taking on the CII. But I said, look, if this is a modernisation agenda that you're looking for, then I'm probably the right person. But, you know, if that's not what you want, then I'm probably not the right person. What do you think were the highlights looking back now? Well, I felt sort of, I suppose, three things. When I 
went into the organisation, what I could see was a very high level of integrity, could see a very high level of commitment. And actually, it was a diverse workforce. And, you know, in some other places I've worked in in the city, obviously that wasn't the case. So that was hugely to be applauded. But I did feel that people were sort of a bit trapped in the past because there were quite a lot of historic infrastructure things that needed sorting out. First of all, the IT system, you know, just basic stuff. How can people really feel they're part of the modern world if they come in every day and everything that they're doing and everything that they're using and everything that they're seeing is not? (laughs) That's bound to have an impact. So it was about saying this is not a heritage organisation. This is right at the centre of things today. And therefore, what do we all collectively need to do to make that the case? So that's been a big highlight. So, so, I mean, you're in our office today. It's modern. Yeah. And it's in the walkie-talkie, 20th Venture Street. Um, in fact, a friend of mine worked briefly at the CII about 15 years ago when the headquarters was Aldermanbury and it's mm. gargoyles and what do we call those little shields of the fire? Are they called fire stamps? Fire marks. Fire yeah. marks. Yeah. He described it as Hogwarts. Mm. He loved it, but he said, was moving out of Aldermanbury part of that almost become a physical symbolization of getting into the modern age? I didn't look at it as a symbolization. I mean, I think us moving out of the building and the building itself are actually two separate issues. I had a really good look at what could we do to the office space? Because there's a difference between somebody coming in and seeing the state apartments. That's It's like a palace, you know. You come in, you see the state apartments and the Ormolu and all of that, and you think, wow, this is fantastic. And then you go behind the servant's door and you see actually what the office space is like. And the building was never designed to be an office. It was designed as an institute. And so even bringing rooms together or stuff like that was incredibly difficult. And the building itself was very challenged from a technology perspective. It's listed, there's all sorts of things. And so I think the decision that we would move out of the building as an organisation for the benefit of colleagues and the way of doing things, that was kind of pretty much a no-brainer. But then the issue about, okay, so if that's the case, what about the building? That was a separate whole board discussion about we own a heritage building, what should we do for the best? And, you know, ultimately, as you know, the decision was to sell it. But there were lots of options looked at along the way before we made that decision. So it's not as if it's a great piece of real estate. Presumably, you'd see it more of a liability, don't you, ultimately, with something like that, that you've just got this thing, you have to keep repairing its roof. and. Well, when you've got limited resources, you do have to ask yourself, what are we really here to do? Are we actually a heritage property manager or are we a professional body with a big challenge for the future? And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but you just have to be practical about some of those things. But without ignoring, at your peril, you ignore you know, how people feel about things, however rational you might be about what needs to be done. And that's why we were actually incredibly lucky that the City of London were interested in buying the building because I think that decision would have been one step more challenging if they hadn't been so up for taking the building on and and they do this for a living it's what they do and they actually own the whole of that Guildhall site they'd always wanted to buy the building in fact because it's just that funny corner of their whole site that was owned by somebody else and it's not always struck me as odd because it's not in the insurance district it's well, in the middle of all the banks. Well, of course, uh, um, yeah, well, it is now. I mean, that was the other thing is that, you know, 
most of us that worked in the building spent our whole lives. I mean, Alison Potts is fantastic about this, that she you know, she had a little wheelie bag because running the uh, Insurance Institute of London, of course, she spent her whole life walking over from the building over to the insurance market. But in fairness, when the building was built, obviously, it was really the the sector then was the big life offices. I mean, that was insurance at the time. And of course, you know, they were over there because you had the Prue building and the Pearl building and all of that stuff. So it would have been a more logical place at the time. So now you're looking back, what do you think the biggest achievements have been, the moments where you can punch the air and say, wow, this is a success? Or you've started off a lot of processes and how many have you been able to say, we've got this done? Yeah, well, we did deal with the building. We have dealt with the pension fund. We are a long way through getting off our 30-year end-of-life IT system. Colleagues do now come in with headphones and laptops. We've got any... A big achievement is anytime, anywhere working. Because, you know, there's always an accusation if you're an institute that you're very London-centric and you're very static and you don't care about your members in the Midlands as opposed to your members in London. Well, I think the way that we've now got our staff are in all four corners of the UK plus overseas. It's got a very different feel. It's not, well, you're here today and you can see it's Friday and basically everybody's working at home. So that would have been inconceivable. So I'm proud of that. And then I think we've shown that the CII can lead a number of things in the market as well. You know, I am very proud of insuring women's futures. When you go back, you can't quite remember how little conversation there was at the time about the fact that women's life journey is just different and I think everybody go yes 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 but I don't think anybody had really focused on how much of an impact that therefore was having on women's financial resilience there was an uncomfortable feeling that women probably weren't in a great place but nobody'd done the rigorous research or kind of come up with a a framework of analysis that just factually, from government data, just put that squarely, plumped it right in the centre of the conversation. And it's hard to always to know just how influential that's been. But when you think of all the conversations that are happening now about pensions, about the ladies that didn't get what they were supposed to get from the past, the fact that Part-time working is very well-intentioned from society, but actually it's having quite a detrimental effect on women's long-term careers. And those conversations weren't even possible five or six years ago. And now it's like in everyday parlance. So, yes. you know, very proud of that. And that was another really big launch event mm. in the South Bank. It was very interesting. What about low points? Would it be COVID? Yes. You know, I think anybody who said that COVID wasn't, would people lost their lives and... In a weird way, it was a bit of a high and a low for us because what it did show was that the huge effort that the staff had made on the modernisation programme did mean that, you know, whereas a lot of organisations were very challenged about closing their offices and getting people home. I remember people just didn't have laptops. Right. That was a bit of a high point because we didn't have any of that because we'd largely had to address that when we moved out of Aldermanbury. But having said that... I think what a crisis does is it rewards you for those things where you're ahead of the curve, as it were, and then it punishes you for those things that, you know, your to-do list of things that you know perfectly well should have happened already, but there's only so many hours in the day and nobody's ever perfectly. But we had, on the 23rd of March, what we were looking down the pike of was no more exams at all for the whole of the rest of the year. 
in-person exams at your local leisure centre? Well, that's exactly how we did them. And of course, there was a whole plan to change that. In fact, it would have happened this year rather than last year. Obviously, that was a low point. And then it's both a high and a low. I mean, we did actually manage to pull our whole exams modernisation programme forward by a year. But there were risk sacrifices that were made in order to get things back up and running. And then too many students then didn't have a great experience of the first attempts at remote invigilation, stuff like that. So there's always a trade-off afterwards when you look back and think, should we have done that a bit more slowly or what should we have done? But, you know, you make the judgments you make at the time and you do your best. So that is a bit of a a good and a bad. Well, as a parent, I can sympathise with that children doing university entrance exams and all sorts of crazy things yeah and the other punishment there was obviously that that was a revenue hit and that yes into deficit is that something you think it's just going to rebound a bit like the rest of the economy we went down 10 percent we're going to grow seven and a half percent this year and seven and a half percent next year and we're back to where we started in very simple terms that is our business plan i mean clearly we want to recover that not actually just for the revenue perspective, but because that means that young people and upskilling and reskilling and career journeys are back on track. That's actually the main reason. But clearly, as a not-for-profit, we also have to have the revenue. We are ahead again this year from where we ended last year. But you know, like the economy, it's probably going to take another couple of years for us to get back where we want to be. That was reflected dip in renewal rates as well, I suppose. Difficult times for people or they were too busy doing something else. It's, they? Un- it's uncertainty. And of course, we had the dual uncertainty, not just of, gosh, am I going to keep my job? Employers thinking, gosh, what, you know, where is this all headed? I think any form of uncertainty always makes people sort of clam up a bit. You know, there's a kind of like kind of... And then actually, as things improve, people relax again and kind of start moving forward. And that we are certainly seeing that happening. So, you know. And do you think having invested means that, do you think more people are likely to do qualifications if they're easier to do, more accessible? You can do them online, you can do them in your spare time, you can do the exam when it suits you, not the only three dates a year. You know, there certainly is a, you can understand that to a degree... There is a bit of a generational issue around some reaction. I mean, obviously, young people have grown up with doing everything online. And also, young people have grown up, as I said, doing things more independently because everyone has their phone and they all sit in their room and do their stuff and they know how to access services and everything through that mechanism. Whereas if you grew up and did things before that, you tend to think a bit more you have to do things in a group or we kind of have to be directed to something and told how to do something it's a difference of attitude but I think there still is a real place for community and cohorts and I think in this post-covid highly digitized world we do have to remember that human beings however intellectual are also emotional and you know you can get very lonely very quickly if you just have services bunged at you and you don't have anything human that kind of goes around that. And that's where I've loved watching. We have an absolutely amazing customer service team at the CII and some members of that have seen people through their whole careers, you know, and they've had students go with them and do their next exam and and things like that. And when you hear those stories, you realise that that human element of what a professional body can do for people's careers and career journeys that is something that we mustn't lose in everyone's enthusiasm to be able to you know do everything remotely now looking back is there anything you would have done differently 
Uh, oh God, there's always <laughs> you'd, you'd you'd live your whole life differently if you went back, wouldn't you? Because you you know because you Obviously, you know what other you know. Than getting that online yeah. exam yeah. vigilation. Yeah. Uh, no, no, all I am um, day one. I think one thing I would probably would do differently. I don't know, but differently, I'd do more. Is I had no experience of a kind of a membership style organisation. I'd always worked for you know very commercial organisations, so that brings with it. You know, you have to communicate with shareholders, you have to communicate with customers. But in a membership organisation, I think that whole engagement and communication piece is... It's a sort of mutuality. Exactly. And that's a bit different. And I think what I probably did was I relied too heavily on what you might call formal mechanisms. So things like the AGM, things like the annual report to get information across to people. And actually, oddly, we did put quite a lot of effort into, you know, modernising that and using videos and all that sort of thing. But in a membership organisation, you can never do too much engagement or too much communication. And I've probably learned some lessons from that. Did you say that might have come across as being more autocratic? You used to sort of top-down executive role where you say, right, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Do you think that might have jarred with people? I'm not sure it did jar with people. Whatever language people use about you yourself and how you come across to them, you've got to listen to that because if that person's saying whatever they're saying, then you know that's how they're feeling. All I would say is that I've probably worked for seven different organisations and all of them have had kind of good appraisal and kind of performance management things and life is a constant learning journey. But even at the CI, I've probably had... Because when I started, the president was my boss, effectively. So I've had at least six or seven different bosses at the CII. And all of them have done, because they're all very senior corporate people, they've all done rigorous 360 and whatever. And um, that is not the language that has come out of that. There's always things you can do better and things you can learn. But arrogance or being autocratic or whatever, you know, that is not language that has ever come out of those processes. That's good. So, well, now you're coming to the end of your time at CII or obviously this gets not over yet but if you're looking to a legacy what would you like that to be to say oh I remember that time when Sean was running CII it was you know what would you like them to remember it for? I think internally I would hope that colleagues would feel that their ability to be empowered to work purposefully and to be listened to and to make their own decisions and to drive their part of the organisation. I suppose that sort of empowerment, which is a more modern way of doing things. I mean, command and control was the past and that works, you know, in a particular way, but it doesn't empower everyone to feel that they're important. And a big part of my life has been to try and learn how you do that for people and in an organisation. And then externally... I hope one thing would be diversity is a fact, so embrace it and get the best out of it and benefit from it and don't be afraid of it and talk about it. And what does it matter? Everybody's different. Everybody's the same. And I think our sector, particularly when you think insurance and personal finance, affect every company, every government, every person, and in the case of the London market, all over the world. So what on earth have we got to be afraid of in terms of full diversity and inclusion within our own profession? In fact, how can we not benefit from that? And one thing I've always felt the insurance profession benefited from 
was certainly there was no particular socioeconomic barrier in our profession where obviously there have been barriers in the law or medicine or other places and, and we should be rightly proud of that. So we're obviously not afraid of diversity. So let's just, you know, if we haven't got enough gender, if we haven't got enough ethnicity, let's just go embrace it and get on with it. This was the bit that most surprised me about EC3 is that I came in the early 90s and I was a graduate, but Mm. most people weren't, actually. And um, it was a good mixture of people. Yeah. You know, you do a, a huge range of interviews and you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs and whatever... And this is a financial services profession, so it's not quite like being a, an entrepreneur where you've, you know, literally started a business in your garage and kind of, you know, you do valeting cars or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you can be a hugely successful entrepreneur from any background, but that is unusual in financial services, but not in insurance and personal finance. So I think that's hugely to be lauded. And you look at, you know, some of the top figureheads in the market and they are from very diverse backgrounds. Obviously, you're still going to be a member of this EII, I'm sure. You'll keep renewing your membership. I certainly am. I've always been a member of the, through the IIL. I'm a huge fan of the lecture programme, etc. Well, so am I, actually. Yeah. But so, obviously, naturally, with the changing of the guard, there'll be another consultations on its way mm-hmm. and another sort of, presumably, a five-year something, medium-term plan is going to be formulated from that. Mm-hmm. As a member, you're going to be asked to contribute to that. What would you like to see when you hand the baton to the next person? What sort of agenda do you want them to be pushing? Yeah, well, I, I think I sincerely hope that a lot of the organisational work that we've done will free my successor up to be almost entirely focused kind of on the external elements of what the professional body can do. And I think the the three major sections of the consultation kind of sum this up, really, because what is the value of membership of a professional body for the future and what do members really want to get from their body? So that's one very important area. The second is when we talk about relevant learning, what does that actually mean? Because it can't all be about qualifications for the future. You know, things move too fast now. You've got to have programs of learning you've got to have you know regulation changes all the time you've got to have you know regulatory learning all the time so what does learning cpd and qualification what does that look like for the future and how does it stay with you through your whole career not just something that you do you know when you're 25 and then forget about it for the rest of your career and then the third one is what is it that our sector really wants by way of professionalism you know People often use this phrase parity of esteem with other professions. Well, do we want that? And if we do, then what does that mean? Because it certainly means qualification. (laughs) Um, And there are no mandatory qualifications in insurance. I mean, how bonkers is that? But on the other hand, would it make any difference, you know, if the regulator suddenly said there's a real minimum kind of low level qualification that might actually make things worse because people would just say oh well that's good enough so I don't need to know anything above that so it's quite a nuanced conversation that whole issue of what are the standards for professionalism do you feel that's something that might actually come from on high at some point I mean, it happened for stockbrokers. yeah funnily enough the regulator will admit that actually when the FCA was first set up that learning and qualification in financial services was one of their very big hot topics. I suspect that there's been actually there's been so much on their agenda because they cover so many things and so many different things have happened, you know, in the last 10 years that they've probably been 
pulled around on all kinds of different things. So they probably haven't been able to focus exclusively on any one thing. So, you know, there was a, a move to make qualification compulsory in our personal finance area. So obviously financial planners and mortgage brokers, that it is compulsory for them to have a level of qualification. But I do now hear a lot more conversation about it in insurance than I ever did. Because it's always slightly frustrating, you know, to be offered travel insurance with someone who's a travel agent mm. who doesn't really know anything about the policy or this sort of, you know, mobile phone insurance ones, mm. mobile phone shop and sort of very low level stuff. Whereas if you asked anything sensible about the policy, you may not get a sensible answer mm. or one that's sort of where your E&O insurer would usually run a mile if they could hear what these people are saying when yeah. they're selling uh, consumer insurance to you. Would you welcome that though? I think we've got to be careful because the fact is insurance and personal finance are incredibly necessary for everyone. And there are 70 million people in this country, you know, plus all the ones the government probably aren't telling us about. And uh, there are 100,000 insurance brokers and there are 30,000 financial planners, right? So you do have to think about how products can be got out through as many touch points as possible. But the issue is, what's the professionalism within the sector itself that ensures that whoever it is who is then used as the distribution is either is absolutely not having to be involved in the product quality at all, uh, because that's the reality that they can't possibly be. But then the product itself has got to be incredibly well designed and thought through and communicated in its own way and whatever. You know, or else, as you so rightly say, you have to, as a society, put a lot more effort into having a lot more people, you know, in all of these professional sectors so that there are a lot more intermediaries to go around. Yeah. So but in general, you'd say stick to the higher added value stuff, you know, commercial insurance, the sort of thing where a broker or an insurer or an agent is going to have to do a lot more explaining and maybe leave the commoditized stuff, get that product probably regulated and let it be commoditized and then sold like soap. Well, but then if you went back, I don't want to digress, but, you know, if you went back to Georgian times and you bought a bar of soap, frankly, you didn't know what it was. Right. And now you're not allowed to do that. If you make soap, yeah, it has to be so European right. Right. But so chemical right. numbers. And things exactly. Like, so, yeah. so but all I'm saying is obviously everything's on a journey. And so there's nothing wrong with a product actually being a commoditized product. But then there is an onus on the profession that manufactures it to ensure that it absolutely does do you know what it says on the box. Yeah. Um, and it's a double thing. So if we're manufacturing products which require intermediation at a certain level, then you, you as a product manufacturer have got to make sure it's getting that intermediation. Or if intermediation in a physical sense is only possible, you know, in a particular context, then we've all got to talk about that and we've all got to think about what we do. But also technology should allow us to create, you know, everyone's experimenting with bots and chat and all sorts of things. And that is all wonderful stuff because we couldn't even imagine that stuff 10 years ago. But let's make it work to the benefit of... If you're a profession, what you've always got to do is think, in what way is this to the benefit of the customer and the client? Not just, gosh, if I did it like that, I could you know, make an extra 2% return for my shareholders or whatever. You know, If you don't make return for the shareholders, you're not going to get any investment. But it's got to be a virtuous circle, not a circle of vice, as they say. 
And so actually talking about technology, do you think there's some point there'll be a role to play for, you know, when we've got these bots and these algorithms, mm. do you think there'll be a way of making that algorithm get the equivalent of its ACII somehow? Do you think there probably has to be? Right. I know that sounds really weird, but if we're to have ethical use of data and we're to have ethical use of chatbots and all of this sort of thing I mean obviously you don't make it sit down in a as you say in a leisure centre in Sheffield and do that but the process that you would go through to help a person to do things properly is actually exactly the same thought process that you would go through with any program or algorithm because just because it's a computer program it's still written by somebody or I know in the future it may be written by itself, but there's still a process there. And in the same way as with people, you've got to make sure that they go through the right process. We've got to do that with technology as well. So that might be in the next plan, or at least a way of working out how to engage with it. Well, I mean, there's a lot of good thinking around that now. And, you know, we produce companion guides to our code of ethics because you can keep changing your code of ethics or keep changing the language in your code of ethics or actually you say do you know what you know the bible still says what the bible said you know 2000 years ago but the issue is how do you help people to relate their experience today to that language and that's what the companion guides are for and you know the market did help us to put something together on ai data and how you can put a customer emphasis on that So there is a lot of good thinking around about this stuff, but people have got to want to go in that direction. Yeah. And obviously CII is a very international body, sort of within the Anglosphere. Would you think more globalisation of insurance qualifications would be good and obviously be something that the CII could lead? Or do you think it's not really going to be possible given so many local jurisdictions? Well, you know, I think we should be very respectful of the work of some of our predecessors because if you look around the world, obviously, as you said, it's largely the Commonwealth sphere, as it were. But our predecessors at the CII were very instrumental in helping a lot of countries around the world to set up their own insurance institutes. And, you know, a lot of them did use the basics of what the CII would have been doing, whatever. But the world has moved on a lot from that. In Countries are a lot more sophisticated. Countries have got their own governments and regulators and whatever. So you've got to be careful that you don't think just because you were way ahead of everybody in 1890 that you're still going to be in that position. So it's a partnership now. It's much more of a partnership. But there's no doubt that every consumer everywhere in the world needs the benefit of both insurance and personal finance. And what they need is not just that, but they need reliable products and they need them from professionals who are there to help them. And that is a bit of a universal standard. You know, what does that mean? What's that look like? And those are conversations that can usefully be had globally. Because I would say, you know, what you'd expect from a doctor is pretty much what you would get. You know, their approach, their ethics, whatever, you'd pretty much get that in any country in the world. I don't know, aviation engineers, you know, there's pretty much of a zero tolerance for planes crashing everywhere in the world. So it can be done. So, you know, people getting trusted and trustworthy insurance standards and products and personal finance standards and products around the world shouldn't be impossible. Right. Well, Sean, you've given back to the Society of Insurance with this time at the CII. What are you going to be doing now? Do you have got any plans for future career or are you just mulling up different options? You could. I think there'd be so many different things open to you. 
Well, that's very kind of you to say so, Mark. I, we shall see. Well, um, I mean, there's so much going on as well. Is insure, you know, <laughs> will we see you running an insure tech or an old incumbent? What would you like to do? Or have you already got something planned? No, no. I, I mean, can I be very honest? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I had already taken a non-exec role with Asta, the Lloyd's managing agency, before I took the CII role. And, you know, we sold our business to Gallagher's. And when I left Gallagher's, I, I hadn't necessarily intended to take on another full-time sort of CEO role or whatever. But obviously, the CII was a very intriguing prospect. And so I did. Um, so... I mean, MGAs are motoring along. Then. Exactly. So, I mean, I, so I don't, I don't know. And, and if I'm, I know this may sound a bit naive, but I've never been somebody that's very good about thinking what I'm going to do next until I finish what I'm, what I'm we doing. Won't jump to another trade body or a lobby group or something. I would doubt that. I mean, I've usually tried to do something different each time I've done something. So, if you look back over my career, it's not a linear career in the corporate sense. I've done lots of different things, and um, that's what I need to think about. Is frankly what sort of organizations would benefit from my skills or what I've learned whatever because that's what you've got to think about it's not so much I want a non-exec career I want an exec career I want a consultancy career because you can do those roles in lots of different ways and it's largely what's your skill set what have you learned and therefore what can you bring of real benefit to what kind of organization and those are things you have to give a little bit of thought to but I'm also I'm quite um I'm quite fatalistic and um, I think to a degree you can have all the plans you like but the next minute somebody will come and say what about this or what about that and it's almost always in my experience anyway completely different from what you thought. Um, I mean CII I'd never have imagined that when you know when I left Gallagher's so um, so let's see. It is written but it would be insurance. (laughs) Um, I mean, not desperate to get out of insurance. No, I mean, I've always been incredibly proud of being in insurance. I mean, what's not to like, frankly? I mean, there's there's some things not to like about certain ways in which things have happened or in which, you know, you're always going to get some people exploiting situations or whatever. But if you think what insurance is fundamentally there for and what it's about and how it works 99% of the time, it's something to be incredibly proud of. So... No, I mean, if there's anything I can do to bring all my years of being in it and learning what I've learnt to make it even better for the future, I'd obviously be very, very keen to do that. Well, Sean, unless you've got any more questions, I've really enjoyed our chat and I wish you all the best for the future and thanks for the work you've done. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at 
www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.